would say for people who are doing Bible studies to be really sure that they are themselves accountable to and immersed in the life of the church, the life of a particular local church. Every week we really become disciples of the world. And every week there's one opportunity, one day a week, where the Holy Spirit pulls us aside and says, you need to be no longer conformed but transformed by the renewing of your mind. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. I'm Nancy Guthrie. This is the podcast for people who love God's Word and want to know God's Word and want to give God's Word out to others. We're people who teach God's Word and we're always looking for ways that we can grow in our skills and our abilities to rightly handle the word of truth. And I have a guest today who can really help us in our desire to get better at teaching. I'm talking today with Dr. Michael Horton, who is the J. Gresham Machen Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary in California. And in addition to being the author of many popular as well as academic books, There aren't very many theologians who can write for as many audiences as he can. He's also the editor-in-chief of Modern Reformation magazine. I've been listening to him for years in a, what I have to say, has been a life-changing experience to the White Horse Inn radio broadcast and podcast. He's also a minister in the United Reformed Churches. So, Michael, thank you for talking to us. Nancy, thank you. We want you to help us teach the Bible. Can you do that? I'll I'll try. Now, one reason I wanted to talk to you today is at Whitehorse Inn, you have not only a book, a new book called Core Christianity, Finding Yourself in God's Story, which we'll talk about, but this is more than a book. It's more like a campaign. Mm-hmm. So can you give us the short version of what is Core Christianity all about? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for asking, Nancy. We all know the statistics. Christians in America and in the West generally don't know what they believe and why they believe it. Finding it increasingly difficult to articulate their faith. And with that, a growing number of younger Christians who are just chucking the whole thing. They're walking out because, you know, they're they're not even apostatizing properly because they don't have anything to apostatize from. They may have even grown up in evangelical churches, but they weren't really taught anything. They didn't really grow up in the ordinary life of the church, going to worship services. It was all the youth group and, you know, how much pizza can you have? And now you're going to college and your youth group stuff is left behind. That's a huge trend. And the line between being a Christian and a non-Christian now is really thin. Core Christianity, the whole purpose of it is to reach a broader audience than we've ever reached before of people who would say that they're Christians and yet not really have a grasp of their faith. Also, people who've never attended church, what we're finding very often is sometimes it's easier for those people to consider Christianity because they don't have anything to unlearn. (laughs) There are a lot of distorted versions of the gospel out there. So we want to reach those people as well and do it in the form of a story, finding yourself in God's story. Now, this is God's story. 
How do you get into it? So you say you want to reach them with it. If mm-hmm. I am a teacher, maybe I teach an adult Sunday school class at a church or I lead a small group, what exactly are you offering that I might use and for what purpose? Okay, first of all, there's obviously the book. Uh, it goes through the major truths of the faith, again, in this story form. Then we have an online Bible study that has various media associated with it, video, audio, print. And increasingly, people are using multimedia approaches in studies. I think all of us who are teachers recognize there's a sense in which you never want to leave behind the old way of standing up and talking and having interaction. And yet the people we are teaching are very media savvy. Yeah, exactly. And obviously it's going to be print, (laughs) namely the scriptures and the preaching of the Word of God that is going to convince people over a long period. But how do you get them into that? How do you get them to even ask the question in the first place and say, well, maybe this is worth considering? So that's why it's a multimedia approach. Well, I got to hear Julius Kim, who's been such a big part of developing this new online resource. I got to hear him introducing it to some people. And oh, my goodness. So... I, as a leader of a group, could set up a group and they can work their way through various modules. They can watch videos. There's questions. They type in the answers online and I see as the teacher leader how they're responding to the questions. I can interact with them. They can send me a private message. You can set it up to where they get a reminder if they haven't done their lesson by the appointed week when Mm -hmm. we're going to get together and talk about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you've done to create an online resource for me as the teacher to use uh, to really connect with online savvy class members is really pretty incredible. Well, that's Mark Green and the team. It's been really remarkable to sit on the sidelines and watch people at work putting this together. I'm really excited about it. So if I am leading a group and I think, oh, I might need this, where do I go to get a look at exactly what we're talking about? Sure. A brand new website just dedicated to this project is corechristianity.com. I mean, this website has articles, other Bible studies, not just the Core Christianity book and study, But whatever we have that is directed toward the same audience is on that new website, corechristianity.com. So let's say my budget's really tight. What's this going to cost me? It's free. Free. We want to go to our our donors and say this is – we would love it if you would fund this so that people in any situation, any condition here in the States or around the world can access this from an iPhone. And don't more and more people, their whole lives are on their iPhones. 85%, according to The Economist, 85% of the world will have a smartphone. That's staggering when you think that, uh, you know, it's a lot more people than have televisions or cars. Well, Mike, on this podcast, we are a big proponent of encouraging teachers to open up a book of the Bible and teach through it. And I know that that's something that you would affirm. So help me with why might I want to, instead of teaching a specific book, work my group through core Christianity? Right. That's a great question. I couldn't agree more with your point. But I also think that one of the things that 
we're struggling with in the church today is systematic theology. How do you connect the dots? Even that phrase, systematic theology, scares people off. Mm -hmm. But we've got to connect the dots. What does the doctrine of the Trinity have to do with the doctrine of the atonement, for example? How do we connect all these things? And what is the doctrine of the Trinity? You could read a lot of books of the Bible and not come up with the doctrine of the Trinity. But when you say, who is this person who is identified as the Son, distinct from the Father, how is he also referred to here as God? What are we talking about here? Putting all those things together is very important, and our systematic theological categories are kind of decaying. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why it's hard for people to read the Bible together and come up with the same things today, same conclusions, because there used to be a kind of consensus about a lot of these doctrines, and there just isn't anymore. There isn't a consensus because there just isn't a lot of teaching on them. So I think there's a really important place for opening books of the Bible and just going through them. But I also think we can't take for granted that people have the framework to be able to understand the Gospel of Mark apart from further instruction. The word doctrine for many people inspires thoughts of boring, Mm -hmm. dry, just creates division. We just want to love Jesus. Mm -hmm. We just want to come and have an experience of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So let's say I put this forth to my group and we're going to work our way through core Christianity and I get that kind of pushback, what would you say? Sure. Well, first of all, it has been taught often in dry and stale and irrelevant ways. And that's to be pitied. If if people gave it a shot and it was presented that way, then uh, I think you and I would both say on behalf of all presenters of Scripture, we're sorry. However, you you know, when you say, I just want to love Jesus, who's Jesus? (laughs) And why should you love him? What has he done to earn that trust? You're already doing doctrine. You know, so we're all theologians. We're good ones or bad ones or thoughtful ones or unthoughtful ones. But at least when we're talking about God, we should be as little confused as possible. Um, We shouldn't actually try to be confused and vague about the one we say we love. Uh, You can't say you love someone you know nothing about and you don't care about knowing anything about that person. You do want to know about God if you say you love him, just as it would be a little bit silly for me to say I love my wife, but I don't want to know anything about her. Well, besides doctrine, that's one of the, what you say, four Ds that this core Christianity study is built around. Can you tell us Mm -hmm. what those four Ds are and how they play into this study? Sure. It's like spokes of a wheel. Drama is sort of the source of our Christian faith and practice. It all comes out of an unfolding drama from Genesis to Revelation that you've spent so much time thoughtfully exploring and unpacking, Nancy, in your books. Um, How does the Bible fit together? Well, different writers with different purposes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is the unfolding story about God's purpose to save sinners in Jesus Christ. And that drama is the pulse, is the heartbeat of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible is not a collection of doctrines. The Bible is not a collection of moral aphorisms. The Bible is a story. It's an unfolding story. And so the doctrines arise out of that story. For example, in the drama, we learn 
that God delivered the Israelites when he heard their cry. He heard them, and he delivered them from Egypt. And as we read that whole episode, that whole story, we can come up with a number of conclusions. God is all-powerful. Look at what he did to Egypt. God is patient. God is long-suffering. God hears the cry of his people and answers that cry. So God is omniscient. He's attentive. He, he is compassionate. And he's merciful. I heard their cry and I delivered them. All of these truths about who God is, these attributes of God, are doctrines that arise out of the drama. So, throbbing verbs give rise to stable nouns. Mm. And then we come to doxology, the third D, praise and thanksgiving. What do you do when you're delivered? You know, God brought you out of Egypt. Why? So that you could no longer have to bake bricks all day. No, God brought you out of Egypt so you could worship him in the desert. And God delivered us from a greater taskmaster, sin, in order to worship, in order to praise and thank him. And it's when we do that, it's as we praise that we now step into the story. It's not just a a ripping good yarn uh, that's true for a lot of people out there. The Israelites once upon a time, Jesus and the disciples once upon a time. But now I'm a part of the story as I take up my part and I read my lines in the script of praise and thanksgiving. And as as that happens, I'm transformed. I'm transformed by the renewing of my mind through the word of God. And as I praise and I step into the story, I become a disciple. I become this character in the play that I have been chosen, redeemed, and called into. So that's how it all comes together. We have lots of people today, Nancy, who who love the story, but they're not sure how it relates to us, or who love the doctrine, but don't realize that the doctrine arises out of a story and is meant to lead us to worship and to godly living. And then we have people who focus on praise. I just praise you, Lord. I praise you, praise you, praise you, without any understanding of why. And then you have people who say, well, it's all about discipleship and and living, Christian living, and it's not grounded in God's story. It's all about me and being the gospel, living the gospel, my co-redeeming the world with Jesus and all of this stuff. No, 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 no. It's his story, and he's written me into it. He's not a supporting actor in my life movie. So you were talking about this aspect of the story where God hears and he sends a deliverer, and he brings them out of Egypt. So when I study a story like that, how am I going to find myself Uh, in that story? Yeah. Well, the story, first of all, is true. It's not relevant if it isn't true, if it didn't really happen then and there. But it's interesting, when Jewish parents taught their children what this event meant, when they would ask, what does it mean when we have Passover? What are we doing? They were to say, when we were in Egypt and the Lord brought us out. In other words, they are part of the story. They're not remembering what God did once upon a time, merely. It is that. But they are actually now, here and now, being swept into that story themselves and joining that cast of those who were delivered from Egypt. And so that's my identity now. 
I, even as a believer, a Gentile, can look back and say, I was delivered from Pharaoh's hosts. And now when I go to the Lord's table, especially, I can say it's not just remembering what Jesus did for others or even for me 2,000 years ago. It's what he is doing now in my presence, in my midst, to sweep me into that story where I am seated with him in heavenly places and feeding on his body and blood for my everlasting life. He is even now freeing me from slavery. He is even now with me in the wilderness of this world. He is even now preparing me to come into his promised land where he's going to dwell with me. Absolutely. You say at one point in the book, you talk about the world is a mess. And of course, we all know that. The one empirical doctrine. (laughs) We can all agree there. Uh, You say there's two important words in the midst of that we need to understand, but we don't always know how to incorporate these things into our teachings. The two words you said were covenant and eschatology. Mm, Help us as teachers. How do we... How do we teach those things? Yeah, they can be intimidating terms, especially the second one. Well, covenant is a relationship that, first of all, comes out of secular politics. God takes up these analogies, and the covenantal relationship of God with his people is absolutely central in the history of Israel and the new covenant as well. We even call it the new covenant. The old covenant is that body of legislation that surrounds the events of Mount Sinai, where God delivered his law and the people swore all this we will do, whereas the new covenant is grounded in the promise that God made to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, made in more specific ways to Abraham by promising a seed in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed— and Abraham was justified by faith. The promise God made to David that he would always have one of David's descendants, no matter how crooked and perverse and corrupt David and his line would be, he would have an everlasting son, everlasting heir of David on his throne. These are all unilateral promises that God made. I will do this. And in Jeremiah 31, God promises, I will make a new covenant. It will not be like that covenant that Israel made with me at Mount Sinai when they swore all this they will do. Rather, I swear I will change their hearts. I will take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. I will write my law on their hearts. I will forgive their sins and remember their transgressions no more. Of course, that is looking toward the day uh, of Jesus Christ. And in the upper room, Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood of the new covenant shed for you. Instead of the blood that we are called to spill, (laughs) our own blood for our own sins, Jesus says, this is the blood of the covenant which I shed for you. And so as we read the Bible, it's so important for us to recognize what covenant we're in. One quick example here, Nancy, you know how it is when you're, you know, you're watching the news and people are talking about how silly the rules are in Leviticus. Yeah. So, well, if you say this is morally wrong and you're quoting Leviticus, 
then how about these where, you know, you're not supposed to eat shellfish, you're not supposed mm-hmm. to so exactly. on and so forth. And those are brought up in the cultural issues all of our time. day, especially in regard to homosexuality. That's exactly. where we hear it all the time, right? So you're really going to say you can't eat shellfish. That's yeah. from the same book where they're saying that homosexuality is wrong. Exactly. So you go back and you say, all right, as you're teaching this as a Bible teacher, it's so important that you help people understand God was giving precise legislation on these matters to govern every aspect of life so that from the moment you woke up in the morning to the moment you went to sleep at night, your whole consciousness was separation. Your whole consciousness was a separation between being an Israelite and being a Gentile, being clean versus being unclean. Now, what's amazing is that dream that Peter has Here he is in the New Covenant. He has this vision of that sheet filled with haggis and, you know, what a lot of us had for breakfast. This is different from the eternally abiding moral law, which includes sexuality, includes the laws of nature, shellfish, and laws about not combining fabrics. Fabrics have nothing to do with something inherent in the way God made the world. It's all about not intermarrying, not confusing the holy and the common. But that has changed now in the New Covenant. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither male nor female. There's neither slave nor free. All of these divisions have come down in the body of Christ. Jesus Christ in his own body now brings together Jew and Gentile. Now, that Abrahamic promise, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed, is finally realized. It helps, especially young people, understand in their own minds why those laws in Leviticus don't apply to us today, and yet God's forbidding homosexual practice does. And then the other part of that you said was eschatology. Yeah. Usually it means end things. Literally, it's last things. But it shouldn't be understood merely as last things. It should be understanding the present in the light of God's age to come, what he has promised. And so maybe the best way to say it is reading the Bible in the light of God's future promises being fulfilled. You know, when I think about... You know, I grew up in the church, studied Bible in college. You know, I've been in the church my whole life. I think that has been a huge missing element in what gets taught and talked about in Bible studies and in teaching Mm -hmm. situations is always pointing toward we're headed toward. We we Mm -hmm. get so focused on the here and now. We so, as teachers, want to be very practical. And our people so often want us to be practical. Mm -hmm. And yet, how can we get the practical right if we don't understand Mm -hmm. where the world is headed and what God is doing in the world? Exactly. Or people think, and it's one reason a lot of Bible teachers run away from the topic, because we, a lot of us grew up with eschatology being all about your view of end times. End times. Yes. Uh, and that's know, not what you're talking about? Not, that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, of course, end times is a part of it. But we're told by the apostles we're living in the last days. Mm-hmm. It's not when will the last days be. We've been living in the last days ever since the resurrection of Jesus. So the clock is ticking. Time is running out on... This present evil age that CNN covers and the the age to come, 
which we announce every Lord's Day, is the kingdom that is coming and will be here forever. It will be consummated when Christ returns. That's what animates our hope, so that when we read the Bible, it's not just something that is giving us promises fulfilled from the past, but is giving us promises to look forward to in the future. Give us a couple of very solid examples. Maybe grab an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage, either from the gospel or epistles, and you're teaching a class, and you want to make sure you put it in light of Mm. what is to come Mm. in terms of eschatology. Can you grab one and tell us how you're going to get there when you're teaching it? Sure. One example is Joseph. What do you do with the story of Joseph? Here he is sold into slavery by his brothers, and he ends up becoming the prime minister of Egypt. Well, we could turn that into a doctrinal story about the sovereignty of God, how if you just follow God, everything will work out in the end, which is not what it's about. Primarily, I mean, that may be a sub-point. Well, is it about Joseph and his integrity? He he has some integrity. He refuses to uh, sleep with Potiphar's wife, for example. Yeah, great. That's terrific. That's not the focus. What is the focus? Well, as you read it, in the light of its fulfillment, you begin to see that really it is an episode in an unfolding story about Jesus. If you keep thinking in your in your mind, every narrative in the Bible is an episode in the story about Jesus, then it forces you to ask questions you might not ask otherwise. Joseph went down into Egypt and was brought out, was raised, not only for his own good, but for the salvation of his people, of his family during the famine. And this isn't just any family. No. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many alive. And if he hadn't done that, his greater son, (laughs) his greater descendant, Jesus would never have been born, who would crush the serpent's head. That seed promised to Abraham in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is taken by Mary and Joseph into Egypt, fleeing Herod's purge, and then is brought back in order to fulfill, Matthew says, the words of the Old Testament, out of Egypt I have called my son. Well, of course, in its original context in the prophets, out of Egypt I have called my son refers to the nation of Israel. But here it refers to Jesus Christ. So we should interpret the Bible the way the apostles did. That means not just interpret the New Testament the way the apostles teach it, but follow them in their method of interpreting the Old Testament as well. Jesus was called out of Egypt just as Joseph's family was brought out of Egypt. Joseph was in the tomb, as it were, and was brought out and raised, but his greater son was left for dead by his brothers and was nevertheless raised to the right hand of the Father with everyone bowing down to him. Give us something from the New Testament and maybe not narrative from the gospel, maybe from an epistle or Hebrews. How are you going to bring eschatology into that? Well, with Hebrews, as you know, the whole thing is eschatology. Um, And this is a great example of what we mean by eschatology not being limited to end times. By eschatology, what we're saying is how basically 
how do the things of heaven correspond to the things of earth? How do the things of the age to come break in on this present evil age? And that is the book of Hebrews, isn't it? It's basically how do the types and shadows of the Old Testament law that established the temple sacrifices, the the temple worship, the priesthood, and all of these ritual practices, how do these point forward to Christ? And how, in fact, does Christ in the New Covenant participate in the Old Testament and its types and shadows? That really is what eschatology is all about. It is how does the age to come break in on this present evil age? How do the types and shadows relate to the reality? Uh, How does promise relate to fulfillment? How is Christ revealed as the fulfillment of all of God's promises? How are they all yes and amen in him? I want to read a statement you write in the book. You write, the church is not only where disciples go once a week. It's where disciples are made by the ordinary ministry and the fellowship of the saints. Pastors do not represent the preferences, ideas, and interests of the people, but Christ. Elders are wise in the faith and able to counsel, exhort, and steer the spiritual life of the church. And it may run against our individualistic grain, but our king commands have confidence in your leader, submit to the authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give account. Mm-hmm. So... We're talking to people who are really doing the work of making disciples through teaching. So what are you getting at here? And what does that mean for us, the average teacher in the church? Yeah, great question. Well, I think that first of all, it means whatever teaching we do, and you and I do a lot of it, whatever teaching we do outside of the church is not the central point of the kingdom. The central ministry of the word takes place through the ministry of the church. What we're doing through these podcasts and conferences and so forth is trying to spark people's interest in being part of the church and for churches to be more serious about Bible study. And so that's a very important function. I mean, when I say the church is not just where disciples gather to sort of authenticate their discipleship. The church is the place where we become disciples because every week we really become disciples of the world. And every week there's one opportunity, one day a week, where the Holy Spirit pulls us aside and says, you need to be no longer conformed but transformed by the renewing of your mind. I found it interesting earlier in the book, you have a chapter on does God speak? And you talked about how It's so common today for believers really want to have an experience that they sense God is speaking specifically to them about the circumstances, decisions in their lives, and can tend to think if that's not happening, something's wrong with my faith. And I found it interesting in that chapter, I expected you to go immediately to God speaks through his word, which of course you go there, but that's actually not where you go first. Yeah, because I think that there are two opposite trends that feed each other. One is to say that God doesn't speak to us at all today, which feeds the tendency to say, well, God speaks to me all the time uh, outside of his word. Now, I'm not saying that God speaks to us outside of his word, but what I am saying is he speaks to us outside of 
the Bible as a book. He speaks to us through the preaching of the Bible, not just the reading of of Scripture. There's this great line in the Westminster Larger Catechism, one of the great Reformation catechisms, that says, the Holy Spirit blesses the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word of God as a means of grace. Why? Because, it goes on to say, it drives us out of ourselves to cling to Christ. See, that's the thing that, that an inner word can't do. As I'm reading the Bible, I'm kind of in control. I can stop where I want. I can, do, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the driver's seat. When I'm sitting there and through the person of another sinner, Christ is addressing me and facing me with the facts about my sin. I can't squirm out of it. I can't put it down and go get a cup of coffee. I can't talk myself out of it. It's just there. It's objective. And then when he proclaims God's forgiveness to me in Jesus Christ, I objectively hear that I'm forgiven. It's not me sitting there with my coffee thinking, well, am I forgiven or am I not forgiven? He loves me. He loves me not. No, it's in the name of Christ and by the authority of his word, I have been told that I am forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. When you read the New Testament and talks about faith coming from the Word of God, it's the Word preached. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God, Paul says. Now, that doesn't mean that a person sitting in jail reading Romans or the Gospel of John and becomes a Christian isn't really converted. What it means is the primary method that God uses, God has chosen to use over the ages, is another sinner getting up and as his ambassador proclaiming his judgment and justification. You close the book with a chapter about callings, you know, in very practical ways, in many ways, about how all of this drama and doctrine and doxology and discipleship should make disciples and how we live. And you write here, until Christ returns, we're called neither to change the world nor to abandon it, but to love and serve our neighbors to the best of our ability. Now, some people may in hear in that actually a lot of controversial things, and some people may hear in that something quite ordinary. Will you just tell us what you mean? Yeah, there has been this really big push to change the world. Uh, and this assumption that if we can get enough Christians together maybe to vote the right people in office, maybe to have a big impact on the arts community or uh, have a really huge impact on economics or something, that we're going to change the world. And a lot of organizations have been founded to try to make that change happen. Uh, There is no call anywhere in the New Testament to change the world. I have all authority in heaven and earth and uh, therefore – Go into all the world and change it. No, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Go plant churches. Go live in churches. Be part of these base communities of the kingdom of Christ, these embassies of grace. Bring others into those embassies. Because the last judgment is coming, the final war. That is the mission of the church in these 
last days. And it's interesting when the Apostle Paul tells the Thessalonians how they should be living in view of the coming of Christ. Specifically, how should we live in view of the coming of Christ? His answer is, don't be a busybody. Mind your own business. Work well with your hands so that you have something to give to outsiders. Wow. Well, that doesn't sound very culture transforming. You know what, though? What's really interesting is if we stop getting ourselves wrapped around the axle of trying to change the world and we just focus on the neighbors God has placed in our path every day who need us, maybe there will be some world changing. But we focus so much on the outcomes and the stuff that maybe CNN would report. Almost nothing that Christ is doing in this present phase of his kingdom is going to be captured on CNN. But people are being liberated from the kingdom of Satan and death and are being made citizens of the age to come. You actually had two extremes in that sentence. Not trying to change the world. Yeah. Not abandoning it. Yeah. Talk about that one. It's my father's world, and he he has redeemed it in Jesus Christ. God so loved the world, not just the church. God so loves the world. And if God really hated the world, he would come in judgment right now and just destroy it. But that's not what we're told he's doing. He's patient, Uh, not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. He is loving and kind even towards those who will never believe. It's amazing. It's creation that is redeemed, even though not everyone will be saved. The whole creation in all of its extensiveness is going to be redeemed, not just our souls, but our bodies, not just us, but the whole creation. In view of that, It would be treasonous for us to turn our back on the world in the name of Christ. He hasn't turned his back on the world. So we love our neighbors. Again, it's not because our neighbors are stepping stones to our stars and jewels in our crown. It's because our neighbors are sick and they need some soup. It's because they're elderly and they need somebody to blow the snow out of their driveway. They're just they're neighbors who need us. It isn't even for the ulterior motive of being able to share the gospel with them. Well, if if I do this kind thing for them, maybe I'll have a chance to share the gospel with them. No, it's really my neighbor just needs me. Just do it because Christ is serving your neighbor through your hands. Now, yes, there will be these opportunities hopefully to share the gospel because of that. But I think that we are so outcome-oriented. We want such big outcomes that we aren't content just to love and serve people who are right under our nose. God has placed there. God has brought them to us because he knows that we have what they need. And instead of giving them what they need, we are just thinking in terms of the impact we're going to have globally. And it just doesn't make any sense. So, Mike, you guys at the White Horse Inn have put a lot into this core Christianity launch, and we'll be linking to it on the website so people can see how it actually works. So I want you to look into the future a year from now, five years from now. 
what would be your fondest hope for mm. the impact that core Christianity has in the church in the States, worldwide? What do you hope happens? Yeah. Well, I hope that there are great stories five years from now about whole families who had been in churches where they never heard the gospel being now in churches where they do and where their kids now are going off to college and are so excited about the Christian faith. And they know not only what they believe, but why they believe it so that they can walk into their philosophy 101 class and not just wither and die after two weeks of relentless assaults on their faith. That's what I, I want to hear more good stories. That's all I'm expecting. I don't know how else to measure it, but families and churches where there is an incubation of thoughtful Christians for the next generation. I noticed that Scott McKnight, his endorsement of this book, he says, it's fit for a new generation the way John Stott's basic Christianity was for his generation. That's a nice thing to have said about your book. It is, and it's worth every dime I sent him. <laughs> uh, yeah, I really appreciate that. And, it, you know, especially because uh, Scott is not Reformed, and it's an important point to make here, I really, really, really tried hard to make this whole project, Core Christianity, not distinctly Reformed. Now, I am Reformed in my theology, as you are, and uh, yet what I wanted to do was say, what are the basic truths that all Christians embrace? And if a friend like Scott McKnight, who's definitely not Reformed, can read it and say, this is basic Christianity, then I feel like it's accomplished its goal. Well, may the Lord use it in many churches, and may many teachers listening to this podcast find it as an excellent resource to ground their people in the drama, the doctrine, the doxology, and genuine discipleship. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you, Mike. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian books and tracts, including Calvin on the Christian Life, Glorifying and Enjoying God Forever, which is in the Theologians on the Christian Life series, which is written by my guest today, Michael Horton. Learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org. 